Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. This is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. If you would like to see previous interviews or support our efforts, please go to batgap.com and I'll give you more details about that at the end of the interview. My guest today is Vasant Swaha, who is down in Brazil at the moment and divides his time pretty much between Brazil and Norway, where he's originally from. Before we get into the interview, I just want to express a thought that I was having this morning, kind of related to my role in doing this interview show. It reminded me of uh, a friend of mine named Mirabai Starr, whom I interviewed last October. She gave a talk at the Science and Non-Duality Conference entitled Bees in the Garden, and she said, like bees in the garden of spirit, we are designed to gather nectar from all the world's spiritual traditions and allow it to become rich honey with which to sustain ourselves and feed the hungry world. We are also endowed with the wisdom to recognize the nourishment and pass over the noxious weeds. I sort of feel like in my role in doing this interview show, I'm kind of a, like a bee going from flower to flower and connecting people with one another, cross-fertilizing in a way. It gives me a lot of pleasure to hear from people who say that you know, they met their teacher or, or they, you know, they met someone they had never known about and had such a wonderful experience or profound awakening or whatever. So it's, it's kind of an honor to be playing that role. And I'm sure the same will occur with Basant Swaha, whom some of you may not have heard of yet. But here he is. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're doing a great job, Rick. Well, thank I you. just uh, recently have seen it, but uh, it is really like you are really connecting and making the world smaller in a positive way, you know. It's so much negative things from the internet, from the new, from technology, but this is the positive, so it's really beautiful. Well, thanks, and, and you're doing, it's like we're all on the same team, you know, and we're just playing different positions, you know. If you know yes. base, baseball, some of us are on first base, some of us are at shortstop, and you know, but you can't really run the team without all those positions. I had a really hard time to find my, my master in my time, you know. Mm -hmm. I had to travel all the way to India and it was very difficult, but now it's an explosion it of is, teachers. It is, isn't it? And, and the fact that it's an explosion kind of gives me a lot of optimism for the world. Um, it makes me feel like, you know, despite all the serious problems that we hear about on the news and so on, something really good is happening that's not making the news very much, but that um, is very powerful and gives us a lot of hope for the future. Well, I think it touches more and more people. So in that way, it's beautiful, but it's, uh, it's always, uh, the world is more and more negative and it's also getting more and more positive, you know? so it's a balance then. Yeah, like the polarities are increasing in a way. Yeah, huh. it's getting more and more unconscious and also you have the balance, people are waking up and they're getting more conscious. But it has to spread and I feel you are doing your part in that, spreading it. Yeah. Like all of us are doing, you know. Yeah. Kind of reminds me of the Bhagavad Gita where the polarities had increased to the point where the, supposedly the good guys and the bad guys were all sorted out into two armies. <laughs> and with God standing in the middle, you know, between the two armies. You know, then there was this huge shift and resolution and balancing of, of tendencies and qualities and so something like that's going on. It has to change. It has to change, otherwise it's really going downhill, no? so it has to change. Yeah. People are already changing a lot, like when I started, just, just yoga was a foreign name, no? Now everybody's into yoga, I mean, 
what they call yoga. It's just hatha yoga. It's just the physical, but it, at least it's the beginning. Yeah, and usually, so usually we, one we thing leads to, to the next. We have to start with the physical body. So you said you went to India to find your teacher. Let's get into your story a little bit because you do have an interesting story so that people can get to know you a little bit better. So you're from Norway. As I recall from reading your story, you were pretty young when you became aware that there was a lot more to life than meets the eye and you began searching. Well, I think I always had that in me. I wanted to be free, mm -hmm. but I didn't know what that freedom meant. And even when I was so little, like five, six, I wanted to leave my family, but it, I had a really good family. It wasn't because anything was bad, but it was just the impulse in me that I wanted to. I remember something else maybe that was thrilling me, something unknown. And when I was only 14, 15, I finished school. I couldn't handle school and they couldn't handle me. <laughs> <laughs> so then it started really. And of course, I was, um, my parents' worst nightmare maybe. Not that I was bad, but just that it was very, um, very different from the norm, no? Yeah. It was very, very different. So I left very early and I always was positive saying, I don't need that, you know, I don't need to study, it's something else. I didn't find that before I, I found the Osho, you know, when I, I tried many things, you know, like getting lost and the, the hippie days and, you know, all these, the drugs and the alcohol and all this, but it went very, very quick, just a few years. Yeah. And then I met Osho when maybe I was 20 years old. Mm -hmm. And before that, I had also gone to India because I was pulled to India, especially to the Himalayas. And that was part of that too. It was something known that I couldn't put my finger on, you know, but it was some old memory in me from the East or from, from the Himalaya. And as soon as I was in India, I felt at home. Do you feel that a lot of spiritual people have done a lot of work in past lives to, you know, create a, create a certain momentum that just gets resumed in this life? Yes, because I remember many things from the past. You actually remember been, specific things from past lives? Yeah, I also was, I also had been with my master in the past and many people I have met, we have a connection from the past. I think that is natural. And it's, it's the consciousness that is, wants to evolve. Or the love, you know, the love, the love connection. Some people, um, kind of reject the notion of past lives because they feel like, well, essentially there is no person, you know, there is no individuality, we're just universal spirit. So how could there be past lives? Because that implies that something or other is carrying on from one body to the next. So how, how do you reconcile those, those two ideas? <laughs> well, I haven't gone so much into it, but as long as you're seeking and you haven't found the truth or yourself, your true self, then it's something that is seeking, that is longing. Yeah, when you have found your center, then it's no more seeking. Then you are not identified with the seeking anymore. It's, it, you don't long for that process. So maybe that is what's carrying us on, you know, that, that connection. Hmm. Till you are self-realized, then something is broken. Then it's, you are home again. Jumping ahead of our story, it must have been quite a few years now since you became self-realized. And yet, do you feel that 
that realization was actually not the end of the road, that even since then there has been continued growth in some respect, integration, refinement, deepening, clarification, anything like that? Definitely, because when it happens, I had no idea that that was what was happening, <laughs> because it's totally new. When you had a master like I had, of course you put him very up, because he has given you so much, and also he was like a, not only a, a master, but the master of the masters, I would say. It was, it was huge. It was almost impossible that you could have that experience. Even though, you know, I wasn't there for enlightenment, it was just life that was happening in that way. Mm -hmm. But I met one man, it was the 16th Kamapa, by chance. And they also had a connection from the past, the 16th Kamapa and Osho. Mm. In fact, he said that uh, Osho was the greatest uh, enlightened being since in India since Buddha. Mm. That is big words. <laughs> but when I met Kamapa, just by chance, I almost just was, sne was sneaking into his uh, meeting with a friend who had been waiting four years to meet him. And by chance, I was there. So I don't know how it happened. And when I came in there, then it was us who started talking. And then I realized that there's other enlightened beings. That was the first time. Other, it other besides Osho, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Because in those days, it wasn't many. It wasn't this explosion that we are seeing now. Yeah. No? Or like you are doing, you're talking with so many. Mm -hmm. So for me, that was a really eye-opener at that time, to see that this is more, you know, but what has been happening now, after Osho left his body and after Papaji left his body, is, is huge. I think it's good for people to have that perspective. I, I was listening to an interview on Skeptico.com with Dr. Jeffrey Martin, who's a researcher who has gone around and interviewed hundreds, if not thousands, of people who are supposedly enlightened or awakened to, to whatever degree in a, in a kind, of, kind of a scientific way with these surveys and, and so on. You know, he expressed some surprise that even among all these apparently enlightened people, there tended to be a certain fundamentalism, a certain attitude that our way is the best or, you know, our type of realization is the best and everything else is a little bit less than that. And it, it seems to me that that's a kind of a, a human shortcoming that creeps its way into a lot of um, spiritual groups and spiritual people. Do you have any comments about that based on your experience? Well, then they're not spiritual, as far as I'm concerned. Or not, <laughs> because, perhaps not as spiritual as they might become. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or they think they are, because you cannot have any opinions. It's, it doesn't belong to anything. It's, it's freedom itself. It's nothingness. You, that division, that separation has to go for the whole to appear. You have to leave for the whole to come. And then all this is just, a, it's just a joke. And even the master then, is no separation. Mm. So it's, it's a paradox, because as what I have gone through, is like you, you need the master, but you don't need the master. You are and you are not. Right. It's both. But as long as you are identified with the, a physical form or mind or ego, then that, will help. You know, that is the beauty 
of the enlightened ones that you get recognized. That is what satsang is. Mm -hmm. You bring, come back to your own self. And nobody is teaching this in the world, as far as I'm concerned, except the gurus or the mystics or the masters, you know? Right, it's not something you're likely to learn in, in high school. Uh, no. <laughs> but uh, there are a lot of spiritual teachers out there teaching this stuff. But I guess the point I was making is that there, there tends to be, in many spiritual groups, this sort of holier-than-thou attitude. And it's just almost like if, if we were talking about food, some people are saying, well, they're not just saying, I like Indian food better than Italian food. They're saying, Indian food is the best. You know, everybody, mm -hmm. if they, everybody really wants to appreciate food, they should just have Indian food, you know, because <laughs> it's better than all other kinds of food. To me, that seems a little narrow-minded. Yeah, it's very narrow-minded, but you can, and you have to know it, it's, it people are narrow-minded if they can say something like that, because it's maybe his part or my part that you met that guru or that part or the Sufi or the Zen or the Buddhist. But this has nothing to do with it when you realize it. It doesn't matter what part you take off the mountain. It's like that. Well, speaking of paradox, though, are there qualitative differences between paths, or is it really a matter of, you know, whatever path you gravitate toward? Well, you know, there's a verse in the Gita that says, because one can perform it, one's own dharma, though lesser in merit, is better than the dharma of another. The dharma of another brings danger. You know, better is death in one's own dharma. So, it's sort of like in one verse it says, okay, yeah, there could be qualitative differences between different paths, but at the same time you should choose the one that's right for you, and that will be better than one that is somehow intrinsically, on some kind of objective scale, more effective or higher. That's more of a statement than a question, but you feel free to respond. <laughs> no, I have nothing to say because when the student or the disciple is ready, then the master appears, it says, you know, and that, that was what happened for me, so I can't, I can only talk about my own experience. I mean, God bless anybody who finds a master or a teacher, that's what I say, you know, it has nothing to do with that. As long as the path gets more and more light, as long as they get more and more happy, as mo long as they get more and more loving, mm -hmm. compassionate, free, light-hearted, non-serious, God bless them, you know, it's yeah. like that. <laughs> so, you shall know them by their fruits, as the saying goes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But like you asked before, it definitely, it took a long time for me to incorporate it when it happened. It is like, it's not like, uh, I see those people also, that is like they come for one or two satsang and then they want to have a certificate that they are enlightened. You know? <laughs> it's not like that, yeah. because it's, you are totally lost in a way. I had to start functioning again without knowing myself. And that took a long, many years. And that's not an uncommon thing either. I mean, Eckhart Tolle went through that. He basically just sat on a park bench for a couple of years after his awakening and tried to make sense of it. Byron Katie went through that. And there are plenty of other, dozens of hundreds of other people who can report similar experiences. So, so what you're saying is that awakening is not the whole package, that, that a, a profound awakening has to be integrated and that can take years, right? Yeah. It is shattering when it happens, but shattering in, the, in a good way. And for me, it happened when I was still in Pune, but also had left the body a year before. So I was in a 
limbo that I didn't know what to do anymore. Because in a way, why I was there, I was gone. The Vasta was gone. I had not much interest to lead the groups and the therapies and the meditation and all this. And then something happened that uh, all my wires in my head got rewired in a way. Mm. <laughs> and I didn't find myself. I, I, I didn't know who I was. I was like a newborn, uh, clean baby in, in a grown-up body. And it was very interesting because I went to the ashram and I said, I can't do this, what I've been doing up to now anymore. And even there, nobody understood. And I was feeling that this is why we are here. This is what the master wanted to give us. It's like something beautiful is happening. But they were thinking about the money and the groups and the business. Mm. So that was an eye-opener for me also that even there in the communes or in the in the mystery schools, they, you cannot see it, you can easily miss it. In the mystery schools around Osho's ashram, you mean? Yeah. It was very few people, it was just a few uh, Indians, I felt, who had been with Osho in the early days. Mm -hmm. Who Maybe it's more in their genes also to see that some transformation had happened. So I totally retreated just... Uh, like Eckhart Tolle said, he sat on the bench, I sat on my balcony and watching the river, you know, yeah. <laughs> like that. But then luckily, or I don't know luckily, but um, then I met Papaji and he incorporated that. Let's probe into that a little bit. So first of all, with regard to the awakening, how long had you been with Osho before he died? 12 years, 13 years. That's pretty long. And so I know you were his bodyguard at one point, so you were fairly close to him. and or one of his bodyguards. And so what, did you also come to Oregon? Were you up at the ashram there? Yeah, yes. Okay. Yes. That's quite, that was quite a scene from what I understand. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I wouldn't have missed that for anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, and incidentally, I should just interject here and before asking this question that sometimes when I, I've interviewed quite a few people who were with Osho and when I do, certain, I get feedback from certain people who say, oh brother, another Osho person. And they have this attitude toward Osho, you know, based upon things that we were hearing in the news during those days in Oregon and, and, and stuff like that. And yet generally the, the people I've interviewed have nothing but positive feelings about him and I, I respect that. I was with Maharshi Mahesh Yogi during the days you were with Osho and the, the two of them actually had some sort of rivalry going where they would kind of make these somewhat disparaging comments about one another. And I, I kind of look back on the whole thing as with Maharshi that he was a remarkable soul, extraordinary man, but he was a man. And as a mm. man, he had flaws and shortcomings and he was a human being, you know, with human, mm. human foibles. Do you have that attitude toward Osho even, or do you see him in retrospect as having been really perfect and, and without any sort of uh, shortcomings or flaws? No, I think everybody has that. You are in the physical body and you have your things, you know. Yeah. So that is that is clear for everybody. I think it's it's not like uh, they say about Mahavira for the Jains in India that when they he got cut, then milk and honey was coming out. You know. Yeah. It's not like that. They Inatable. are not shifting gold. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that but this is the master for me is that it can help tremendously to open your heart or your seeking or your consciousness 
I mean, look how difficult it is even for people to start driving a car or learning mathematics or playing a guitar. You need so a teacher. You need a teacher. And that is, a, for me, as soon as I came into his energy field, and especially when I started guarding or being physical around him, it was so dense, so thick of nectar that I could cut it. Yeah. It was like that. So it's like, it's beyond any, I think this is, it's nothing to do with that. What they, I'm just talking for, for me, you know, I don't, I don't care, you know. Yeah. No, I totally know what you mean. And I've had that experience myself. It's like the, the darshan is so thick, you can cut it with a knife. And uh, yeah. like you say. So that goes beyond anything. It's like when your heart, your mind, your soul opens, it's like you can, you're not functioning from reason anymore. You're functioning out of love or a longing for the truth. No, it's like this. You have felt something that is, goes beyond the mind. I think that one thing that concerns people, though, is that um, there have been so many instances of people who have discarded reason and who have begun to sort of take every utterance of their master as the sort of gospel truth, you know, that can't be disputed, rather mm -hmm. than sort of maintaining some degree of discrimination and um, discernment. I mean, the Buddha, for instance, was famous for saying, you know, don't accept anything because I said it, just measure it against your own experience. And, and uh, you know, you should, you should be the final arbiter of what's useful and what's not for you. And there have been so many instances in which people have kind of gotten into trouble by following teachers blindly without mm -hmm. any discrimination and have ended up being disillusioned or taken advantage of or something like mm -hmm. that. And, and it has given some people the attitude that the whole guru scene is a thing of the past and is no longer appropriate in our mm -hmm. modern day, modern culture. Yeah. So I'm just airing those points for the benefit of those who are, have been pondering those issues to see what you have to say about them. I think it's great, but any guru is opening the eyes, it doesn't make them blind, no? So either the people are not, they, they, they need to follow blindly, mm -hmm. they don't have the intelligence to see through or, or follow their own, but the master is there to open your own intelligence, both in the heart and in the mind. So it's not like the master say, yeah, maybe in the beginning, because it's like you fall in love, it's the honeymoon, right. yeah? But as you go deeper, then it's your, your own truth that responds. Any master would say that, don't follow me, but take, you know, look at it, what I'm saying, feel what I'm saying, meditate on it, go deeper. Maybe it rings true, maybe it's your own experience. And as far as I'm concerned, there's only one truth. It doesn't matter if it comes from Krishnamurti or from Osho or from Ramana, or, yeah. it doesn't matter. There's nothing to do. God bless you if you have found the master, you know. And I also know this with the master, the guru in the West, and I totally understand that, you know, that they are, but in a way we don't need that anymore. But right. that can also be a totally a poop out because you do need it. Yeah. You do need it. And the, e the, the one who is still is enslaved by the ego or the mind, of course, they don't want a guru or a master. They don't want to surrender. No ego wants to surrender. So then how can they fill them up by their own shoelaces? Right. It's impossible. I have seen, I know that, you know, and I'm not identified in any role, but I can play different roles. You know, if it's helpful, it's like, uh, 
like Ramana said, you need a tone to put out another tone, maybe, you know. But who cares? Afterwards, you will laugh about it. It's like, no, I can laugh about Osho, that crackpot. That doesn't matter, you know. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's like that, because he, he worked, and Papaji worked, and uh, Ramesh Basika worked. They're all friends, you know, on the path for me, you know. Yeah, it's like <laughs> good point. The, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, they say. Yeah. Um, I, for instance, uh, have a number of friends and have interviewed a few people who were with a guy named Adi Da. And I don't know if you know who he was, but sometimes he was called uh, Baba Frijan. And he did some really crazy stuff, really out there, very, really quite decadent. I wouldn't even want to mention some of the things on a you know, family-oriented show. But um, <laughs> I'm very impressed with some of the people that were his students. That, you know, they really um, got something out of it, despite the craziness. Yeah, Which is not to excuse or pardon craziness. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, it should give teachers liberty to just do whatever the heck they please and with the sense that, oh, I am perfect and whatever I do has got to be right. That could be very dangerous. But surprisingly, sometimes people who have that, teachers who have that attitude, still manage to turn out some pretty impressive students. Yeah. And I'm not implying for a second that you're doing anything like this. I don't know anything about your scene. I got a very good feeling listening to videos and, and so on. It, in fact, it was really sweet because most of the time when I prepare for these interviews, it's kind of intellectual. You know, I'm listening to people give talks and all sorts of intellectual stuff. And it was just really sweet listening to some beautiful devotional music and, and seeing the joy and, and the love and, and so on that seems to predominate in your ashram. I've had some very devotional, loving times in my own life, and, and so it was kind of nostalgic and, and just very nourishing to, to experience that. Well, I don't really have any uh, teaching. I, I, don't, I haven't written any book. This is the first time I'm on Skype. Really? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. So, yeah, you pulled me out of this, Rick. <laughs> Like, I have to come out, and it's, it's an intimate thing, you yeah. know. And for me, love or the, the feeling, it's intimate. Yeah, books can do a lot, but that is just the beginning. They can read so many beautiful books, it's all out, everybody is giving out the book, or all the beautiful masters that has been. But uh, for me, it's, it's the setting, you know. I feel like it's, it's now, because the truth is in the moment. It's happening now. And that's it's the energy that can transform that is happening here and now. And that is what is beautiful with uh, this also. Why I said, yeah, this Skype, let's try that because it's happening now. Yeah. You know? No, I, I can relate to that. I mean, I've lived in ashrams and around situations like that. And I know that the energy can become very palpable, you know, very rich and, and thick. And you just bathe in that atmosphere and it can be very transformative and I, I do get the feeling that you you're helping to create that sort of atmosphere in your you know places in Brazil and Norway and uh, people around you seem to be very happy so yeah great the, <laughs> something is it is Something's happening something is happening but I wouldn't say I had an I have an ashram because I don't want to be locked in an ashram okay but I, I'm creating both. Some I kind of facility. Long, yeah, I have long retreats, mm -hmm. but then I also want people to be free and me to be free. It's not like we are 
there all the time, you know, I, right. I have both. Like, like Osho, he created the huge ashram, mm -hmm. but Papaji was totally against uh, any ashram, anything like that. So, I made this, this was my two biggest influences, I would say. Yeah. So, I have a balance. I, I have an ashram, but I don't have an ashram now, it's both. Yeah. So, they can also incorporate this in their life, in their ordinary life because uh, the ashram can also become like a safe zone, no? Right. You, you, have to, you have to live your own life in the world and bring that what you learn in meditation and yeah. in self-inquiry and being together in love, bring that into the world and be more creative, you know? Yeah. It's like that, that's the challenge. Yeah, it can be like a womb or an incubator and, you know, at a certain point the, the chick is ready to leave mm -hmm. the incubator and if the chick tries to stay in the incubator it's kind of a cramped situation mm -hmm. you know it's time for the chick to go out and start pecking around in the farmyard yeah yeah <laughs> i mean here anybody can come and go as they want <laughs> it's about the freedom right so there's no 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 rules no regulations nothing to follow except your heart yeah <laughs> that's great so when you were talking about your awakening that happened a year after you'd been with Osho, or after he passed away, it, it sounded like it was quite sudden, like you were taking a shower, eating breakfast or something, and all of a sudden, pow, uh, there was a big shift. Is that kind of the way it was? No. In fact, I was, uh, I was uh, in the middle of leading a therapy group in the, in the ashram, Tantra and Hara group, centering mm -hmm. group, and then uh, I got very sick. But I had been going through this dilemma, like what to do now, or in, in inside questioning myself. What is it now that is happening, or who am I now in this new... And then I got very sick with dengue fever or malaria. Ooh. And uh, I was just laying at home and I wasn't good taken care of. So, it was quite seriously, serious, and in that process, uh, when I came back after that sickness, which almost killed me, mm. I think, I don't know, but that combination together with that inner uh, spiritual path or meditation or whatever, I don't know, it created something that when I came back again, I was totally different. Interesting. It changed in that week. It changed totally. Yeah. And and for the longest time, I could just. I remember going down to the little bakery in this Indian street from my house, and I could use hours, and it's like 200 meter, and I could stop and watch the children, and being in awe with this or talking to the little cat. I mean, there's just like a three-year-old again. It was totally mm. amazing. So I had to... I felt super fragile. Mm. And you don't even know it, but uh, I, I knew where my space was and I knew how to get these things. And that took a long time to absorb or integrate or whatever you should call it. And uh, that uh, Papaji helped me a lot to do when I met him. Interesting about the sickness, a similar thing happened to St. Francis. He was very, at least according to that movie, Brother, Son, Sister Moon, he was very sick and almost died and then he came out of it and 
kind of in a transformed state. I like I thought of the phrase uh, catharsis precedes metamorphosis. Yeah. Um, or another way of putting it is when the postman knows you're going to move, he tries to deliver all your mail. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but so that's interesting. And this let's talk a bit more about this integration thing because it's very interesting that you. You know, you were so childlike and delicate and perhaps vulnerable would be another word. And it took a long time to sort of toughen up in a way, I'd say, to integrate, to be able to do normal stuff in that, st and yet retain that state of, of realization, right? Yeah, the, the only, everything was gone. The only link I had in a way that I, I knew was the link with the guru. Mm -hmm. Which I think why the guru is there in the in the end because everything goes. But this is was something that this was okay. It was okay. You, I could feel the presence of the guru. You know that yeah. this was okay because nobody else understood and I didn't even understand. But there was something in me that it it is okay, and it was a total acceptance. It was a very blissful sp space, but it was very new, mm. and. Uh, I was very fragile and very uh, sensitive on all levels, physical, emotional, like you feel like you can, you are see-through, you know, mm -hmm. and you can feel and sense what people are thinking, mm -hmm. you know, beyond the words. Right. So that was also because you don't want to, I don't want to, <laughs> to feel that because there's so much madness in people's head. No? Too much, yeah. So, yeah, too much. So, so. I can totally understand why people have uh, retreated when these things are happening, you know, away from the world, because you just want to have peace. And that came up in me too. Uh, I wanted to go back to the Himalayas. I just wanted the, the solitude of the mountains and the peace and, and people who live naturally did in the mountains. Did you find yourself I, crying a lot during that phase? No, no. no. So that happens sometimes, people have this opening and then they're very vulnerable and the heart is like really tender and they they can't go to a movie for instance because some simple scene in a movie will get them sobbing and they'll dis disrupt all the other people in the theater <laughs> no that i don't but crying with children in the street or or like this happen you know like like a spontaneous thing in the moment but i don't remember like like that yeah but I went to the mountains and I stayed there for a long time to integrate. And I felt like I want to be here. I want to live here. But then it was something else happening that, no, those days are finished. Mm. I have to go back to the world. So it was, uh, and I resisted also. <laughs> I yeah. don't want to. No, at last I have peace. I don't want, but it was something that, and then I met Papaji and he helped me in a way. Describe uh, that. How, how, how did he help you? What was that process? Well, I was, uh, I was living half time in America and half time in India in those days. Mm -hmm. Oregon and No, in, in uh, Long, Long Island. Long Island, okay. Because I was staying in uh, America as a base to make money mm -hmm. after Oregon for a long time. In the Hamptons, in fact, so I yeah. studied the Very super fancy. rich, yeah. the super rich, and then I had my rice and dal in India. <laughs> what were you doing in the Hamptons? Cooking for people or something? Or? No, I was uh, doing session, teaching uh, yoga, uh, Tai Chi, meditation, like this. Cool. You know? 
So, and I could, uh, I could charge them a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, then when I met Papaji, I was on my way back to the Himalayas. And then uh, I had heard, of course, because this is, was all in the circles about Papaji there. And uh, then I took the train to Lucknow and I came there early in the morning and I think his satsang was starting like uh, seven, eight o'clock in the morning. So I just reached the satsang house and it was very few people in those days that came. And we had the satsang and now when I was sitting there, I was thinking, uh, I'm not looking for a master, I'm not looking for a guru. I don't look for anything, in fact, but it's something I'm here for. But I have nothing to ask, I, I don't know, you know, I felt like, what am I doing here? But I'm here, and it was very right that I was there. And also it was this traditional Indian, like Hindu with the guru, and it was a little foreign for me. Really? Even after all that time with Osho, it was foreign yeah. to Yeah, it was, it was a different setting there. Mm. It was a different setting. But then uh, after the satsang was finished, and I was still sitting there, uh, just a few minutes, then one of his uh, caretakers came and asked that Papa V was asking for you, mm -hmm. to see you. And uh, then I went into his room and he asked me, do you know where I live? And I said, no, Papa, I just came now. This is my first time. And he said, then come. And he grabbed my arm. Mm -hmm and took me out, and all his disciples were standing outside in Namaste, waiting for the master, and then he came pulling out, I didn't even have my flip-flops with me, and into the car, and I went to his house, and then he said, no, you know where I live, no, you come for lunch tomorrow. That's how it happened, and next time, next day for lunch, then uh, I asked him a question that no, I know this ocean, this ocean of peace, of love, but sometimes the past, the mind, is coming that you come, you leave the ocean. And In other then, words, sometimes uh, you, you found yourself getting caught up in the mind and losing the ocean status? Yeah, it was a very new thing, no? Yeah. It, the, the balance, it wasn't... Right, totally stabilized. It, yeah. And then I realized that this is why I wanted to check, because he was like a lion. There was no bullshit there. Right. <laughs> and then he just uh, looked at me. And of course, in that situation, I was totally intent, focused on him, on the question. And he said, he just drop the ocean also. What, how, what did that mean to you? Everything disappeared. Really? Everything disappeared. That it was, it was nothing left, and just we started laughing, huh. looking into each other's eyes, and we started laughing and laughing and rolling on the floor, and pumping each other, just like people <laughs> totally, totally blissed out. Huh. Then afterwards, he wanted to feed me mangoes and peeling the mangoes, mm -hmm. and we were both sitting there like little boys eating this, slivering the mangoes. Messy mangoes, and. And I thought, this is just fantastic, you know, and we had a, he totally took care of me. Hmm. But it was already happened. It wasn't like for some people that come to him and things happen. Right. So, but he recognized something there and he just took me and, and helped me, you know, that was, uh, he was really a 
a guru in that way. And we had a, many amazing times together. He even came to Manali, to Himalaya, and we were together there where, where I stayed. So it was uh, beautiful. Nice. So when he said, drop the ocean, and that mm. somehow shifted something for you, was it just a, a kind of a momentary shift that you enjoyed when you were there in his presence eating mangoes? Uh, and when you left there, it kind of got back to the delicate thing and sometimes getting caught up in the mind? Or was that like a second awakening in a sense where it really shifted and didn't, in a stable way, it just kind of added a new level of stability to your realization? Yeah, I just got a more deeper trust or acceptance of the state. You know, because the, even if the shift happens, the all, the mind has been there so long that it still goes on, but you are not so identified with it. But it's also new. So I feel like the, what you call self-realization or enlightenment, that is it's a new beginning. The, the darkness of the past is gone. The suffering is gone. And it's amazing because it's, it's no more darkness, it's no more suffering. But still, it's so new, you have to incorporate, you have to learn how to function because then you still need the mind to function. Sure. Yeah, so... You need the, the body the and you need on. the senses yeah. and all that. It can be so big like it was in the beginning that I just surrendered to it, you know. It takes time to incorporate. Yeah. And he gave me this push, very strong push again, that it is like it is, and you can let go totally, and the mind will function, do its job by itself. You don't need to be... I don't know what happened, but something happened. It is the, it's, the, it's the grace of the, of the Guru, you know. In it's, some it's subtle a, way. Is it, it's a transmission or something, you know? yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I was going to ask that. Um, in some subtle way, before he said that, do you think that you had had a tendency to kind of hold on a bit to the ocean and, and push away a bit? at the mind when the mind was you know trying to do its thing and he just inspired you to be more natural so that you just didn't have to manipulate and and you know you kind of instilled confidence in you that you weren't you weren't going to lose this if you weren't like vigilant every moment to stay on your toes and you know hold on to the ocean was there anything like that he just kind of instilled a certain removed some doubts and instilled a certain confidence in you yeah in a way but after the the first happening in Pune, it, it was totally, the mind never really taught you, but I had to also find something to ask him about that, because I was there, mm. you know, so it was something that happened in that moment, like he himself said happened with Ramana, when he talked with Ramana, it yeah. was, I don't know, it's, it's like beyond any, what is said, it could be anything, you know, but it's something happened, something transpired there. And uh, that was not, it was even uh, more shifts happening on a deeper and deeper level, I thought. The, the last thing that went for me, it was a kind of a, I think the last thing that goes is doubt. Yeah, that's why I use the word doubt. I, I, it's sort of like doubt is this dry rot, you know, which kind of keeps, keeps us from mm -hmm. accepting it fully or something. Yeah, accepting it and that is, uh, that it's it's real it's real you know mm -hmm. that uh, you have this kind of doubt or the mind itself is doubt or you have a self-doubt 
that how can this, it's almost like, how can this happen to me, but it is happening. So that takes time to integrate. And uh, that I remember also when that moment was where it was totally gone. I mean, for many years I, I became very, very sensitive after so I couldn't even drink chai, which I loved, or mm -hmm. coffee, or beer, or anything. Right. It took maybe four or five years, I was super sensitive. But then I start practicing again, so now I can drink beer even. <laughs> you start practicing like, what? <laughs> taking in the some oh, just normal doing some music. of that stuff. Yeah. You mean? Yeah, 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 to get used to that again, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> because it, you can take it totally the other way also, but then you become very reclusive, you know. I I think that could also happen, you know, like you become protected in in that space, but. Um, I wanted to integrate it. It's like the the, the Buddha at the gas station, no? It's like that. Yeah, right. That is the that yeah. is the new that is the new thing. That's the idea. Yeah. Some years later than that again, which I really had, uh, it was just a, a very peaceful years then because uh, it was all new and I was in India. It was a beautiful place. It's beautiful people, but then I was in the heart of India, and I was uh, walking out to a cliff that was sticking out like a mini Grand Canyon and I was laying down there and I fell asleep on this cliff on the, like an island out mm. and when I woke up it's a, fantastic it's like not polluted at all by people then when I opened my eyes I saw a little monkey baby with the mother mm. eating some fruit just three four meters away from me and in that moment, I felt like I'm in the paradise, you know? I'm in, in the garden of paradise. Everything was so simple, everything was just ordinary, everything was just so beautiful, everything was just so lovely. It was like, then tears came, just of beauty, you know, and, and that I remember then something just like <sighs> melted totally, it was a total meltdown. Then the, the last, that it, it is so beautiful, you know. It is real, yeah. but without the words, it's impossible to talk about it. You know, I'm doing my best. <laughs> I'm getting the sense of it. Yeah, and I have a feeling that what you're saying is that this incident with the cliff and the monkey was like a, another shift, uh, and it mm -hmm. was more of a heart shift. The the previous one had been like I am the ocean, kind of a mm -hmm. in a way a mind shift into kind of a cosmic unbounded awareness, and that this was more of a heart awakening where everything, you know, there was a an enhanced appreciation of everything. Would that be true to say? Yeah, first, I think on the spiritual path, people want to go from the denseness, from the suffering, from the problems, higher, no? Mm -hmm. So they want to go out, but that is a big job, that's a struggle, they have to let go of all the, what is holding them back, no? So that takes the work. If that happens, then again, you have to incorporate that down again, because I see some people can just sit with it here in the intellectual, you know, yeah. talk, talking about it. Right. It has to be incorporated into the physical, you know. Mm -hmm. so, so you become very human. You know how we were talking in the beginning about this change that seems to be taking in place in the world or in, in the kind of the culture with awakenings becoming more and more common. I, I've seen a trend that is similar to what you just described, where 
there, there has been a phase where a lot of people have had a kind of an awakening, but it has more of an intellectual flavor, or even if it's experiential, it's not integrated into the human, as you say, to use your words. And these days, the word embodiment is all the rage. You know, there's so many people are talking about becoming embodied, becoming integrated, living not just as spiritual beings, but also as human beings, and somehow fully bringing the two of those into one larger whole. So it does seem to be the, the kind of the, the direction in which contemporary spiritual development is moving, in my experience. Yeah, let's hope so, you know, yeah. let's hope so, because that's, we should be human, no? it's, yeah. that's, that's why, like the heart is such a balancing point, mm -hmm. no? so you have the, it's a lot of people that are talking just, uh, maybe they have it, but it's, it's like, it's just from here, and people, they have already too much in their heads, yeah. They have to be more empty here, more full in the heart, sinking down to the heart or the belly, being, yeah, just a natural living. It's, it's no big fuss, you know, it's no big fuss. All, all the teaching and all the sadhanas and all the meditation, all that will go, you know, you will just be a natural free human being, you know, that yeah. it's, it's no separation, we are all part of it. We've just been so long separated, keeping ourselves separated. But you know, it's a little bit of a delicate thing, because like, for instance, you were with Osho for a dozen years, and then another year after he passed away, and then you had your awakening. Now, what if, you know, after six years, instead of 13, you had sort of convinced yourself that you were awake, and, and whatever doubts your mind was entertaining, you, you thought, nah, I'm not going to have those doubts anymore, I'm already enlightened, there's nothing to do nowhere to go, you know, whatever I am experiencing, this is the reality. And I'm actually using words that I hear people using these days whom I, I often don't think have actually had a genuine realization, but as you were just saying, they're very much in the head, and they've read mm -hmm. too many books, and they, they kind of like have gotten a little bit hypnotized with this line of thinking. And I see it as sort of a, a pitfall or a trap sometimes, a stumbling block on people's path where the, we could call it premature immaculation. <laughs> There's this sort of premature assumption that, that I, I'm enlightened and I don't need to do anything, as opposed to someone like yourself who maintained, as I gather, maintained a certain devotional or stance and, and didn't assume anything. And then when genuine realization came, it was unmistakable. Have you run into this in, as a teacher? You know, and what would you care to say about it? A lot, a lot, and that is, I mean, that must come from somebody, because I don't even, I don't even say that I'm enlightened, well, what is enlightenment? I'm just a natural, free human being, you know, it's like, uh, it's just words, you know? Yeah, yeah. self-realization, yeah, maybe, because you <laughs> realize who you are, or you don't even realize who you are, you realize who you are not, Yeah. and if, yeah, so, <laughs> it's all, it's all the paradox to talk about, how to talk about it. The, the closer you come to the truth, the more difficult it is. That's why I say I'm, I'm not out there to spread that I have a, a big teaching or... No, I, it's very simple, you know, it's so easy, that it's so easy to miss also. It's so close that it's, you know, it's so close that the closer than you think. So don't think about it. It's like all that has to go, you know. Yeah.
but people have all these and of course you see because we are so much special in the west we are so developed in the head that that is the first you have to empty all that garbage and all those thoughts and all that frustration how can there be any peace when people go around with all that that's the first thing that is uh, that's what is the work you know that is the sadhana first to empty yourself and then only you can start being more sensitive and listening go deeper and meditation can start that meditation comes later first you have to do work on yourself you have to see you have to grow you have to empty all the garbage and how can they have any i mean it's ridiculous as it is you know when people say this it is i have i have nothing to say you know but they are already too much mental now you have to empty that because when when you touch somebody in the heart when you talk from the heart and you know you have established the connection there then there is more trust it's a relaxation because it's not my opinions and your opinions it's the truth it has nothing to do with any teaching any religion anything it's just now here open free beautiful and then you feel it you get goose pimples you know? <laughs> <laughs> goosies they call them yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I'm kind of reminded of Christ saying that except you be as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And uh, I'm sure that doesn't mean peeing in your pants. It means no. having a, a sort of an innocence and a kind of a naturalness, and, and which brings with it an openness, you know, like totally. not a thing of I, I have all the answers already. So who am I going to listen to? But more like, what do I know for sure? You know, so I think I'll listen to whatever comes along that sounds, you know, useful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's always in India, they said, when you are ready, when you can accept that you don't know, mm -hmm. then only can you get anything out of the satsang, you know. You have, you have to empty yourself to be available for something that is beyond you. No? It's, a, it's a mystery, you know. You cannot learn it, but you can catch it in a way, you know. So when somebody comes to you, let's say in Norway or Brazil, and um, you know they're brand new how do you help them empty themselves or how do they end up getting more emptied by being there uh, what do they go through so that they can become you know more fit to uh, go deeper we have a lot of different uh, meditations therapy dance creativity sharing self-inquiry hypnosis physical things creative things, you know, all these things, the whole specter is more to get people more in tune with themselves. Find that innocence again, which is the most important. Because people, they are not happy first, you know, they, because you are, when you get lost in your mind, you lose your heart. Heart is happy, it's spontaneous, it's free. So the first thing is to lose the seriousness, I would say, to mm. become play, like a child. Yeah. To teach to teach them that to create a safe place where you can let go, hmm? and then that let goness, I would say, it goes deeper and deeper. First, the holdings outside who I am, who I think I am. I have to behave like this or like that, and deeper and deeper. The, how if you can't even let go of that? How can you let go of your whole identity? Hmm which is what meditation is all about, to go beyond your image. 
So it's a gradual thing, and that is again the paradox because you are already there, but people have to loosen up. They are too tense. <laughs> you understand? Oh, yeah. There's a verse in the Gita which goes, um, the unreal has no being, the real never ceases to be. And, you know, you can read that as meaning that, you know, you're already there. I mean, there, there's nothing but that reality. How could there be anything other than that? But that's still mm -hmm. a concept, you know, unless it, unless it becomes an experience. And it doesn't necessarily become experience on, on reading that verse one time or contemplating that, that idea one time. You know, there's, wouldn't you agree that there have been years, if not lifetimes, of conditioning, layer upon layer upon layer, that uh, somehow have to be purified or cleared away before we can begin to seriously, you know, realize this stuff as an experience rather than as a concept? Yeah, it has to, that is what is the homework, I would say, yeah. to cleanse oneself. That people want, many people come to satsang, they want to go from that denseness to that beyond, because they are longing for that, like people before, or maybe still, longing for heaven in the afterlife, no? <laughs> because it's so terrible here. Why? Be happy here. So that is the, you have to transform your own life into a happy life, then only, then it's easy. When you have happiness, when you have peace, when you are truthful, which people talk about, but to be truthful, that takes some guts. Mm. You have to be really truthful. But in that truthfulness, then you cleanse yourself. In that cleansing, the spirit gets stronger. Huh? You have to be strong in spirit then you become integrated human being. Most people are not integrated, they are all scattered. There are many, many personalities. And all the personalities have to go hmm. <laughs> to become that, that simplicity again, you know, that innocent, that childlike nature, that spontaneous nature that is present in the now. So it is, it is a gradual thing most of the time, but when it happens, it's instant, it's boat. Well, I mean, if you're taking a boat across a river, then, or, you know, across an ocean, then it's gradual as you go across, but when you get to the other shore, boom, it's instant, you're on the shore. <laughs> yeah. So there's no, no contradiction there. And you don't jump out of the boat halfway across the river thinking, well, this should be more instant, I, I, I'd rather just be done with this, I'm jumping. You'd be in trouble if you do that. Yeah, so I think my main thing is just to share the, the love and the happiness. Because out of that love and happiness and togetherness and in love in, in life again, that you are you're loving your life, then creativity comes. And then the energy starts moving by itself, higher, freer. So this the first thing is to create a the right base for it, mm. that people are that people are free. They feel free. They feel happy. You know. And uh, and there's been so much suffering, and you see that now it's like a depression, stress. It's never been like that. Prosecution, you know, like right. Yeah. It's it's like that, you know. You yeah. You, I mean, so many it, people have insomnia. Yeah. Oh, it, all that, you know. It has to it has to change, and people have to be. Take, start taking responsibility for that change. So I get the sense that you're, the role you're playing, 
is to create an atmosphere which is saturated with love and in which if people place themselves in that atmosphere then the tight knots of tension and stress and you know constriction can be can relax a lot more quickly and and safely than they mm. could in other atmospheres that they might ordinarily be in yes and in that relaxation then you can go deeper right, right. and deeper and deeper and deeper and that is the stopping you know to stop but how to stop is almost impossible if you don't have place to stop where you want to stop in other words, what you're saying is if you're caught up in your usual everyday life, it's very difficult to make that sort of transition. But if you can take a break from that and get in a, a loving, protective, supportive atmosphere, then it becomes easy. Is that what you just said? It is easier. Yeah, that is yeah. why it's always easier in communes or in spiritual uh, gatherings yeah. or in uh, meditation with fellow travelers in the Sangha, you know, like this. Mm -hmm. Of course it is. Not that one should get stuck there, no, but you need that help. I mean, if it's your life, yeah, fine, there's nothing wrong with that. But like Buddha said, the best as a seeker on the path, the worst is to be with the unconscious, you know, find conscious people. If you don't have conscious people, if you don't have people that's coming more from the truth, then stay alone, make your own little beautiful place you know you can do your thing come back have a meditation dance in your apartment like that but even better than that is to have a gathering a sangha a commune of fellow travelers it's supposed and you know that and then if you have a buddha there also of course then you have a all the better yeah it's like that no yeah it's it's very simple yeah and that is so traditional i mean in every culture I think that understanding is expressed in one way or another that the company you keep makes a big difference and if you can be in the company of the enlightened um, however that's defined it's going to be very conducive to your growth and if you know and if there's a teacher there like you say a buddha a master someone who has really awakened to a profound degree then it's going to be an even more powerful atmosphere so it's a great blessing to be able to be part of such a thing it is it really is. Are you married? Do you have a partner or anything like that? Yeah, I have a partner, yeah. Been with a long time? Yeah. I just want to say to my friend Dan, who is feeling the questions, if anything has come in, go ahead and send them. I'll, I'll ask those questions. Um, someone said, I, I read someplace that you went on to spend some time with Ramesh Balsakar also after Papaji? Yeah, well, he was on my way there in Bombay. You know? I was living more or less in India a very long time. I had a traveling a lot. So I went to him also and um, we became very good friends, enjoying each other. Yeah. But it wasn't anything uh, new for me, but it was just a beautiful man. You know, I wasn't seeking anymore. Yeah. So uh, I remember he just came always to hug me. You know? It's like that. It, it wasn't any questions right but it was the it was the love of uh, of truth or uh, or to be with somebody like that you know so i had met many known and unknown like that and i know also people in india that lives very quietly 
with just five, six people around them, beautiful enlightened beings, you know, so you, you have the whole scale. Do you feel like there's particular advantage to being having a really small group like that, or is it really like just, as they say, different strokes for different folks and according to what you're attracted to, that a big, huge crowd kind of thing could have its value and also a very small, intimate one could have its value according to what you're attracted to? I feel the intimacy is uncomparable because uh, it's human, you know, it's like how it always been. It's like Papaji said that truth never lives in big gatherings, mm. you know, it is in small. And that's my feeling, I don't say it has to be that because I know people can get a lot out of a, a big gathering also when people speak the truth. Right. But, but uh, it takes time, you know, it's, it, I stopped traveling around, having a satsang here and there and in that city, in that city. Mm -hmm. Because people there just came, oh, are we going to go to satsang? Are we going to go to the movie tonight, yeah. you know? So I want the people who are more devoted to, to themselves or to the truth. You mentioned that being in your, you didn't call it an ashram, but being in your facility is not a permanent thing. People go out in the world and do their, their normal thing. but. Do you have like a core group in each place, Norway and Brazil, who stay there year-round? Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's like the bees for the honey, no? When the honey is there, the bees come. Yeah. So uh, it, it has, here in Brazil, it's, it's a whole village around. It's, it's happening and it's beautiful. Oh. It's a, really a place of freedom. Maybe a hundred people have stayed, come here. You know, it was nobody when I started here. You know, nice, and so and they're all, building little homes and... and they are houses and schools and uh, work and everything, you know, and give sessions and uh, teach yoga and all the things that all these people do, you know. <laughs> cool. Yeah, and the same in Norway, but this in Norway is more difficult because we are more in the, in the beautiful mountains, you know, so it's, it's not so easy. Here it's more... And in Brazil, I like, it's like, a, I, I always say it's my new India, you know, because it's pleasant and it's good fruits and vegetables and people are very relaxed. So it's, it's very easy. They, we are very well treated here, to say it that way, you know. Because some places in Europe, in America, they have this old Christian denseness. Yeah. And that is not here at all. Yeah, no, Thank it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, really. It's, it's interesting. I know when I spent some time in India, first of all, when you first go there, there's like this feeling of softness in the atmosphere, you know? And it's just like, ah, soft feeling. And then, then you come back, you fly back to the United States, and you land at Kennedy Airport or something, and you start driving around, there's this kind of denseness or hardness or grossness yeah. or something that's in the atmosphere that contrasts quite noticeably when you go back and forth like that. It is different energies in different places, of course. Yeah. And India, for anybody, I think, on this path, or who is into themselves, meditation, self-inquiry, it will feel like coming home, because uh, it is special there still. It, even though it's changing a lot, of course. Getting westernized. Getting westernized so quickly, yeah. you know, but uh, you still, you have that, because for thousands and thousands of years, and it's the only place I have been where I come into place, a temple, an area, or in the Himalayas, 
and I can feel like, whoa, it's been like this for thousands of years, you know, like I'm embraced. You, that's how I feel, you are embraced. If you are sensitive to it, you get embraced by it. Yeah. The peace. Yeah, I think it's worth dwelling on that point for a moment, just that a certain place can get I don't, I don't think this idea will be too alien to the listeners, but a certain place can get just saturated with Shakti or with, with certain quality, as you say, if, there, if there's been something going on there of a spiritual nature for thousands of years, it just gets soaked into the rocks, so to speak. And, it does. Uh, yeah. It does. And that is very much in, uh, in certain places in India. And they have that. I remember Papaji, I came, I went to Gango tree, which is the beginning of the Ganges, which was quite a nice walk. Yeah. And I, I filled the Luta, a kind of a container mm -hmm. for him with this holy water, where it just came out from the glacier. And I, because I knew he had this love, like Moda Ganga, no? which uh, it's not like that for me, but I love it. But I felt like this area where the Ganges is coming out from the glacier is very unique. It's dense of good spirits, you know. It's yogis who have died, mystics, enlightened beings. It's superb, the whole area there. And when I came down again and I told him I brought this from the Ganges, from Gangotri, he was ecstatic like a child. Mm. And the first thing he took, he was drinking it and splattering to everybody who was in the room, like blessings, you know. And for him, it was so real, you know, and it's so beautiful, you know, to see this. It's like you, you know it, but for an ordinary person, the Westerners, they think it's just silly, you know, but it's, it's from your soul, you know. I'll tell you a funny story. I have a couple hundred friends who live in ashrams up in Urakashi and, and another guy who lives up in Gangotri a, a lot of the time, actually. And he, he sent me a Facebook message recently. He said, uh, there's a beautiful sadhu in Gangotri who loves your Buddha at the gas pump stuff. He lives in Gangotri year-round, much of the time with no electricity. His kutya, which means a little hut, is buried uh -huh. in snow. He, he lives there, like he's one of only six people who live there throughout the winter. But somehow he found your site and loves it. So I thought that was kind of cool. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I mean, somehow he has electricity. Somehow he gets a, they get an internet signal through a cell tower in the area. <laughs> so kind of amusing. Really, really nice. I have a very dear friend there also who, who is an enlightened being, but he just has five or ten people around him there. Mm -hmm. in that area between the Takashi and Gangotri. And uh, he's not interested in more, you know. It's, yeah. it's like, that's what I, I mean. You have people, I, I know enlightened people that... I met one, in fact, that was sitting under a blanket. He didn't want to see, say anything. He even wanted to hide when you came. And then you have people who want to speak to the whole world. No? You have everything. Yeah, I mean, there's stories of, I guess it was in Yogananda's book, of people who throw rocks at anybody who tries <laughs> to come in. They just want to keep yeah. them away. You know, it's just not their dharma to, to deal with big groups. I keep the middle way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, somewhere in between. <laughs> well, you know, that, that thing I started out with, bees in the garden, um, I really get the sense, and maybe we can talk about this for a few minutes and uh, see if any questions come in. Maybe no questions have been sent in this time, but 
if we understand God to be omnipresent and all-pervading and, and so on, then we're really all just sort of reflections or expressions of that divine intelligence. And the more we, you were talking earlier about purification, the more we purify or clarify uh, our instrument, mm -hmm. the more full we can be as an expression and the more we can be a, a kind of a servant of God or a tool of the divine. I'll bet you have a, a sense of that very profoundly in your own life, that it's not really you doing anything. It's, it's more like you have just somehow put yourself in the position to be useful to divine intelligence, and you're just kind of spontaneously carrying out the impulses of that, the, that kind of like deeper, uh, more profound intelligence. Does that kind of ring true with you? Totally, totally. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the beauty, because one has no more problem. You are just a, a servant. Yeah. Servant, servant of love, servant of truth, servant of grace, servant of God. Call it what you want. Nothing can be more. That's why we are here. And there's something very be, blissful and joyful in that, isn't there? Yes, everything that is, is true, everything that is right, everything that is God, everything that is love, is blissful, no? Mm. They say, Satchit Ananda. Right. in India, no? The last is ananda, bliss. It's higher than truth even, you know? And you cannot talk about it, but it's the ecstasy of just feeling oneness, of being part, of being at the service of the good, you know, of the beauty. Well, that's really sweet. Sometimes people downplay that. In fact, I have a friend who recently told me he was getting a lot of flack on Facebook because he was talking about bliss a lot and and some people's understanding of realization doesn't really include bliss very much they they think of that as kind of more of an emotional thing whereas realization is just this cognition of reality that's not terribly heart-filled but you read the lives of the great even the great non-dualists Shankara, Ramana, you know, Papaji, Nisargadatta and they all had this devotional side that, in, in which they reveled in the bliss and the joy and the, the ananda, as you say, and uh, found great sustenance in that, great sweetness. Yeah, the, those who say, they, they, they don't know what they're talking about because I've been, I've been rolling on the floor with Papa in bliss. <laughs> you know? And, and this, so many of these non-dual or they, Ramana, they don't, they don't know, it becomes dry, it becomes mental, it's not yeah. integrated. You, 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 when that bliss gets absorbed into your whole body, uh, you become a blissful being, mm. you know? You don't need to wait to become an angel. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's no, it is blissful, then life itself is bliss. It's joyful, and that's how it should be. It's a, it's a gift, and you are you are grateful. You know, you, it's a gratefulness, and that gratefulness can only come when that love love is there. It's a, I don't know. I don't. I never think about it. I'm trying to formulate words. You know, I'm not. <laughs> it's, well, it's you're doing okay. You're, no, you're doing a good job. And the reason I like talking about this is, well, firstly, it doesn't get talked about too much. But these qualities of bliss and gratitude and 
devotion and it, there's a whole realm of sweetness and uh, sumptuousness that is sometimes left out of, of spiritual discussions but it really is a kind of a delightful feature of the whole thing of spiritual evolution in my opinion um, I mean there's there's nothing dry or heartless about full realization it's it's like a life of of joy and I've, I, I'm not speaking necessarily from any sort of personal authority I mean I've, I'm a, I'm a work in progress. It's a, it's a matter of growing happiness and growing bliss for me. But I've had enough tastes of it and seen enough mm -hmm. examples of it to know that it's uh, something well worth aspiring to. You know, one minute of life in that state realized fully, one would derive more happiness than an entire lifetime in, in many ordinary states. That's how it is. Yeah. If just one taste, then it will change. And that's why I said this with the, more the intimate gathering, mm. or what is, you know, in India they call satsang. If it's real satsang, that nectar is yeah. dripping. Yeah. Then just one taste, and people transform. They change. They have to change, because they've been living in lies. They've been living in illusions. So just one taste, something changes. And that can be a start to a more happy life, you know, freer life, real life. So we need to get, recognize that, you know, to be open. So when even spiritual, like you say, even spiritual people have these ideas, it doesn't make sense, you know, we have to be open to so many teaching. You have a mirror, he, she was just dancing yeah. ecstatically in bliss. You had Ramana Maharshi, he was just sitting there. You know, but he was very juicy. And for me, what is more juicy than to be part of this? It doesn't make sense. Uh, he was don't a great hold, devotee of Arunachal. Yeah. Yeah. Don't hold back. I just want to shake them. You know, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, you are both, you know. You, you have the physical, but you have the, the ecstasy also. No? Yeah. And Shankar, I mean, who was considered the founder of Advaita, he he wrote all sorts of beautiful devotional poetry and was really a great bhakti, a bhakta, as well as being a great jnani. I see no separation no, from that, from bhakti and jnani or advaita or sufis. I see no separation when they are like this, you know, it's like uh, you have love and you have meditation, you have self-inquiry and you have bliss, you know, it's like they come together. It's on the path you can talk about these things. But in the end, it's, it's one, suddenly you are blissful, totally, and one day you are totally in the silent. It's like that, you know. It's, it's just different aspect of God, I would say. There's a beautiful talk I heard one time about realization of God, and it was phrased in the way that as once awakening has occurred, the, the ability to appreciate really begins to ramp up, and really begins to become much more profound, and the appreciation just accelerates and accelerates to the point where the desire to know God becomes really acute. And, and the example used as if, you know, someone was appreciating some artist's work and thinking, oh, this is such a great artist, I would really love to meet this artist, his work is so beautiful, you know. And eventually the, the artist hears that, keeps hearing that some man here in this village appreciates me so much, I think I'll go and meet him and, you know, surprise him maybe. So God comes to meet someone who is really 
capable of appreciating, God or the artist comes to meet one, someone who is really capable of appreciating his creation. So I just thought I'd throw that little story in there. You might like it, but you, you seem to be like a great it. devotee, you know, and uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm a devotee of truth, of life, of love, of joy, of ecstasy, of all, you know. It's, it's all. It's in the oneness, it's all. And you are attracted to... Uh, it came a time, i tell you a little story also with Papaji. After this love affair and this caretaking of Papa, then when I came to India a year later, I was always going to visit him before I go to the Himalayas. Just out of respect, out of love, nothing, I didn't look for anything, you know, just like <laughs> pranam. And then uh, I came to Delhi and I realized that I can't go there. I don't, I'm not going there. To Lucknow? Why? Yeah. Hmm. Why? I was, this was like in, inside my head, you know, I should go there because I always go there. No, but I don't, I have I cannot go. And it was very strange because I couldn't go there and I didn't know what. Then I went to my place in the mountains in Manali and I was wondering, what am I doing here? Why didn't I go there? Why? Why did I was supposed to go there, but I was supposed to go to Lucknow first. Mm -hmm. And it, just two days after I came, I went to the hot bath. They have these hot baths there from the springs. Mm -hmm. And I opened the door into the bath and out comes Papaji, straight into my belly, ha. belly to belly. Ha. And he said, Swaha, you are here? Ha. Did you know I was here? And I said, no, I didn't know. I didn't know you were here. Come. <laughs> that was it. And then he take me to his hotel. Huh. And then that was amazing. And then I really felt like here now, even the master, I cannot escape. You know, it, it's, all, it's effortless. Even yeah. the master comes to me. Because that's how it was in those days. I had that deep respect, which I still have for anybody like that, of course. We went to his hotel and he had a few devotees with him. And I said, this is not so nice. I have a much nicer place. So I took him to the place I stayed, which I, he liked a lot. And he just moved in there. And here I was, we were staying together in the same house. And then I took him around all the sides in the mountains because I had a car there, also a little Jeep, you know, an Indian Jeep. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how it is, you know, it's like, you don't know, but if you just trust, if you are surrendered to that, if you are a servant of that, it, it, it will happen, you know, it's, it's impossible. If, even if you don't do anything, it will happen. You know? That's a very cool story. It sort of shows in a way how an awakened person's life can work, where you just feel to go this way and for reasons you can't understand, you go this way and yet then you see maybe in retrospect, oh, so that's why I went this way, you know, because this and that happened. I met this person or such and such happened and, and so on. And so, it, and so, you know, you, it kind of makes you wonder, well, what is the mechanism of that, you know, letting the dogs in and out here? What is the intelligence that is orchestrating such a thing that was causing your mind to say, no, I'm not going to luck now and, you know, just kind of like, move the pieces of the puzzle together so that they met at that at that place in the Himalayas. It's it's cool to contemplate. Yeah, it, it's something there on a higher level, you know, 
that is happening that you are not so used to yet because now these things are much more smooth you know this is happening like but at that time a few times it was really like that your mind because you had the plan and then your reality no you are not going there this so it was like plan. this <laughs> yeah so you have to trust you know to in my own life i've gone through phases where that's been happening well for instance doing this show i you know, I had this idea that I was going to do a little radio show on the local station here in my town that has about a 10-mile radius, and I kept pushing on that, and I kept getting resistance, and it wasn't working out. And, you know, and finally some friend said, you know, you're thinking too small. Put this on the Internet. It'll become much more worthwhile. So that I ended up doing that. So, you know, it kind of was a no-brainer to do the radio show. Why, why wouldn't... I mean, this is a very spiritual town I live in. A lot of people would find it interesting, but it was like something was or causing the people at the radio station to resist the idea. And, uh, you know, it was the perfect thing. I'm so glad they did. <laughs> um, but then other times in my life, I've, I've followed whims and tendencies that I thought might be some kind of divine guidance, and eh, they weren't so much. So, you know, it's nice when it becomes more and more and more clear so that you're not just kind of muddling around thinking that it's God guiding you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it comes to a point where it's only God gu guiding you because there's no more you in the way. Yeah, there's more, no more you to muddle, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can't say that I'm totally there yet, but it's, it's you know, it's moving yeah, but, in that direction. But soon. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, um, is there anything else you'd like to throw in that we haven't had a chance to talk about that, um, you know, you feel like you'd like people to hear? I'm just happy that uh, all this is happening and that there's more and more people uh, awakening and that we can share the love and the joy and in this way also that it spreads and that we feel each other and support each other. And today is the 21st of uh, March and that was the Enlightenment Day of my Master. Oh. And without my Master, I wouldn't be here. So for, it's for the, all the enlightened ones, past, future moment, I'm very happy and grateful for all of the enlightened ones. So I think we should all be grateful for them from any traditions, any part, because we all work for one, is to uplift the consciousness and that people become more happy, free, self-realized. Mm. Great, that's a nice blessing. So thank you for that. So let me just make some wrap-up points. I've been speaking with Vasant Swaha. He's in Brazil at the moment. Someone told me it's about four hours south of Rio. Yeah, yeah. it's the most beautiful place, of course. Yeah, <laughs> and check out his website. I'll, I'll be linking to his website from his page on batgap.com, but it's a really beautiful website, and I've asked him to send me the name of his web developer because I have people who would like to have their websites look like that. You're, when you're not there, you're generally in Norway. Do you sometimes lead tours to India or anything like that also? Yeah, I was just in Thailand just a month ago. Okay. And I go to India. So it's uh, Brazil, Norway, India, and Thailand. Cool. Is that a bird? You got birds, it's I've got, got dogs. It, <laughs> yeah, I heard. He wanted to go out now. <laughs> yeah, I know. It just starts raining now. Oh, better, you have something over your head, I hope? It's, it's beautiful, yeah, it's beautiful. Good. Okay. 
For those who've been listening or watching, this is uh, an ongoing series. Um, I think I've done about 280 of them now. So if you go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, you'll find them all archived and organized in various ways. You'll find a link to Vasant's website. You'll find a list of upcoming interviews, um, quite a few of them, well, some of them scheduled as far away as next uh, September. And the ones that are done through Skype, we're making live now, streaming, so that people can send in questions. And there's a form on that upcoming interviews page that you can use to submit questions during the interview. There is also a donate button, which I depend upon people clicking if they feel so inspired in order to support this whole venture. Um, there's a place to sign up to be notified of each new interview by email. There is an audio podcast of all these interviews so that you can just listen on your iPod or Android device or whatever. There's a page that gives you all the options for that. And a bunch of other things. Explore the menus uh, and you'll see what's there. So thanks for listening or watching. Thank you, Vasant. And been, thank been a great you, joy. Yeah, it has been nice to meet you. Yeah, hope to meet you in person someday and give you a big hug. Yeah, I was thinking the same. That'd so be nice. it has to happen. Yeah. May everybody be happy and let's relax now. Okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Namaste. Namaste.